You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. Like Joanna said, my name is Andrew. I'm the student pastor here. And that means that I get to work with the junior high and high school students here at Seabreeze. And you know, when I was their age, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. I've always loved cars, and I, I couldn't wait for the freedom. It drove me crazy that it was such a long process. I don't know about your experience, but at the time when I got my license, it took six full months. When I was 15 and a half, I could pass a written test and then had to, to practice for six months before you turned 16 and I could finally take the driving test. And that didn't make sense to me. If I did the math the other day. When I was 16, six months of my life was 3% of the time I'd been alive. And that was a lot. I was used to tests that took 30 minutes maybe, you memorize some facts, you regurgitate them on a piece of paper, and you're good. So why six months to, to, to learn to drive? But it turns out, though, driving wasn't just about knowing the rules. You find out the first time you drive that staying in your lane, adjusting your speed, watching out for other people on the road, and then obeying the law is pretty difficult to all manage at the same time. It takes time for the facts that we learn to be tested and for us to learn how they actually apply situation by situation in the real world. We actually call this process uh, of moving a fact uh, from true to real. So we talk about this in the student ministry all the time. True is a fact or idea that aligns with reality. This is the way that the world really is, like the law of gravity. It's true. And truth becomes real when it affects the way we live. Real truth is practiced truth. Like the, the law of gravity is real to us because we've actually all experienced its effects, whether that's falling, skinning our knees, maybe you've broken some bones. Truth becomes real for us through experience. And in our series, we've been looking at one of the foundational truths of reality, that God is real and he has a plan. But with the evil we see each day, we're addressing the practical questions that we have. Where is God when people wrong us or when life gets hard? Where is God when things get scary? Our theme verse has been Romans 8:28. It says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God has not abandoned us or this world to our fate. He is working out the details of our daily life. For Christ followers, I think we would agree with the fact that gives this verse its significance, that, that God is in control of the universe, and he's powerful enough to make good on his promise to work for our good. You know, I, I, I guess that if we were given a written test, we'd all get the answer right. In fact, I gave you a written test with this question on your handout. The question is, who's in charge? You see the blank up there. I trust you to fill it in. But the answer is G-O-D, God. Who's in charge? God's in charge, of course. But all too often, there, there's a disconnect between that fact and its day-to-day -day influence on our life, on our decisions, on the way we view the world. As we face new and difficult obstacles, often we wind up looking across the landscape of our life, asking, where is God today? Is he here? If so, where? And it's an honest question that I think we've all asked at different times. We wonder what's going on when life isn't panning out as we expected or our plans fall apart. We wonder if God is actually there 
when sometimes he seems to be silent. The problem isn't with God and his power or his presence in our lives. What's lacking really is a depth of belief that that only comes as we see God come through for us. Ideally, we want a depth of faith that, that trusts the big truth that God is in control in moments of uncertainty and doubt. But that kind of faith isn't formed overnight. So how do we know if the big truths of our faith have formed into convictions that shape our daily life, our daily decisions? Well, like a driver's license, we can only find out as we're tested in the real world. So in the story we're going to look at today, we actually identify two tests that reveal whether our beliefs have made it from true to real. Test one, it's a fun one, the test of God's silence. There are times in our lives when God does seem silent. It can be self-imposed through our own sin or the distance that we create in the relationship. We're, we're pushing God into the background. It can also be, be God's intention to let us move into the future trusting what he's already said. There are some questions that we have that just don't need an answer for us to be able to still faithfully follow him into the future. And the story we're looking at today, it comes from 1 Samuel in the Old Testament chapters 4 through 7. Uh, this is more of a story of the self-imposed silence. But we're going to be hitting several chapters in the story. It's, it's a pretty long story. I encourage you uh, to go read it on your own. We're going to hit the high points. It's really interesting. And the story takes place in Israel around 1050 BC. This was a unique, unique time in Israel's history where they were nearing the end of a 400-year transition period from the death of Joshua, one of their first leaders, uh, to the first king of Israel. There's 400 years of this interim period where an interesting collection of individuals called judges led Israel. They weren't kings. They were figurehead spiritual leaders. And sadly, this turned out to be a time of national decline for the people of Israel. Here's how the book of Judges summarizes it. This is the last verse in the book of Judges, summarizing the whole period of time. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this is never a good description of anyone in the Bible. If you read through the Old Testament and the story of the different kings, usually you knew how the rest of the chapter would go as they were describing a king and if it said that they did what was right in their own eyes. It wasn't going to go good. So, The best way to describe Israel at this time was moral and spiritual anarchy. Not only was the leadership off track in their relationship with God, but it seemed like everyone was. We pick up with the story of Israel with one of the last judges. His name was Eli. And during Eli's time as judge over Israel, hearing from God was pretty rare. And God's lack of communication, it left a void. And in that void, the nation of Israel turned to other gods and even some superstition. Under Eli's tenure, people were allowed to live in rebellion and worship other gods, to have their hearts turn away from him. This caused further distance between the people of Israel and God. Their rejection of him and his ways perpetuated the silence that they experienced. And we do a similar thing. When we think God is silent in some area, we fill that void with other things. Maybe... You throw money at your problems, 
trust in your wit, maybe to wiggle your way out of a tight spot. Maybe you place your hope in your kids and in their future. I mean, it could really be anything. When that thing takes our hope and trust away from God, it is functionally acting as a false god for us. It may be a person, a status, a life goal, a lifestyle, the future, or even the past. But no one is immune to the pull to fill the void that God's silence creates. I mean, consider Israel. In the story we're going to look at, Israel had, had a rich history. The spiritual reality of God was, was seen in their lives. In fact, the, the other countries knew of their rich spiritual history. It was known far and wide. They had the law given to them by God to know how to live. And they'd actually experienced the daily reality of God's provision in their lives as they walked through the wilderness. But in this story, we find that Israel's heart had wandered far away from the Lord. Much of their worship became superstitious and pragmatic. They had a habit of worshiping God when it was advantageous and ignoring him when it wasn't. And this led to test number two, the test of failed plans. 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 2 says, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Israel's plan was to get rid of the pesky Philistines. They had been a persistent pain, and Israel wanted them gone. Their initial plan, let's just go fight them. That failed, and there's no indication at that point that they decided to include God in the decision-making process, but they were really quick to blame him for the loss. The next verse says, When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. I just imagine there's like this board meeting, and they're like, all right, new plan. God is portable, so let's bring him with us. You know, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest covered in gold. It was topped with two figures called cherubim, between which God sat. Technically, the Ark was a representation of God's throne. It wasn't God, but it reminded the people that God was with them. There had been times in Israel's past when they were commanded to bring the ark with them to battle. And in that situation, they were reminded that God was with them and they had victory. But over time, the people forgot that the ark reminded them about God and began to believe that the ark had special powers. They thought that if they carried the ark to battle, then God was obligated to go with them. They became superstitious. They thought bringing the ark into battle worked in the past. Why not now? Let's, let's give it a try. Because they were treating God like a superstition, he allowed their plan to backfire. 1 Samuel 4, 7 through 10 says, The Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great, 
Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Bringing the Ark didn't guarantee victory. It did strike fear into the heart of their enemies, but actually, it was motivational. It was too much fear. It motivated them to fight. Not only had their plan failed, but to Israel, it even appeared that, that God had failed. And their response was just utter despair. Eli couldn't handle the news of the ark being taken, and he actually passed away. This was a national tragedy, and actually, it was pretty much an impossibility in their minds. They couldn't, they couldn't see this coming. But they forced through a plan without asking God for input. This was all their idea. We can react the same way with our plans. We have a desired outcome, and we convince ourselves that we need it to happen. We strategize how to do it, and then try to get God's permission. I imagine it's like, it's like as a kid, like wanting to go on a field trip, and then forgetting to have your parents sign the, the waiver. And so on the bus, they forge the signature so they get to go. For us, we want something to happen, and we figure it out how to make it happen. We, we figure it out. Then, sometimes the final step is to check the I prayed about a box so we can say yes if someone asks. Truth be told, sometimes we don't take the amount of time necessary to include God in the process. We don't actually bring a neutral heart to God asking what he wants in prayer. We don't take the time to, to check if what we want violates what he said in the scriptures. And if it needs it, we don't take the time sometimes to get wise counsel. And when things don't go according to our plan, it, it's painful. It's painful. You may not know this, but I love guitars. Recently, I forced the purchase of a guitar. I thought it was okay, but I got things out of order. I bought a guitar first, planning to sell a different guitar to cover the purchase. I mean, on the surface, not a terrible strategy. There are return policies, but it's not ideal either. You know, I prayed about it a couple times for a couple seconds, but I was caught up in, like, the guitar search. You know, it was so fun to research. I, I just really love researching. The real issue with my plan, though, was that I broke my word to my wife. I forgot that months before, I clearly said that for my next purchase like that, that I would have the funds first, and then I would purchase whatever it was, purchase a guitar. The plan that I was running was one that had worked before, but not this time. The guitar I was going to sell turned out to be broken. It worked two months before, but suddenly it didn't. And I couldn't sell it to cover my purchase. God was letting my brilliant plan fail. I had to go to my wife, tell her what I did was wrong, and ask her forgiveness. She was very patient with me. She knew I was buying the guitar and that this was my plan. But I had to go back and, and clean up the mess that I made. Looking back, I got so excited about the prospect of a new guitar that I went through the spiritual motions of decision-making. I mean, I have plenty of guitars, guys. <laughs> but I failed my test. As we could tell from the story, so did Israel. And maybe you failed a test or two as well. It's not fun to fail. So when God is silent or our plans fail, how are we supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do? 
Response number one, the first thing we need to do is get perspective from God's word. God needs to be the first place we go, not the last. And thankfully, God has spoken to us through the Bible. Now, there may be times where he seems silent in a a specific area or maybe with a question that you have. What God has revealed to us is sufficient to faithfully follow him. It just might not be as much as we'd like to know in the moment. So I'd encourage you, don't get stuck in despair asking God why. Regardless of the cause, what we need most as we face testing is God's perspective found in the Bible. And I I think the Bible is amazing. It's a collection of 66 books written over 1,400 years through which God has systematically revealed himself. Most people, when they hear from God, they don't hear an audible voice because he's already spoken to us through his word. One of the things that we say in the student ministry is like, what language does the Holy Spirit speak? He speaks Bible. He speaks scripture. It's been recorded and translated into our language so we can know God and hear clearly from him. Let what God says in his word help you navigate your life. And I know even as as I say this, talking about getting perspective from God's word, that, that concept can feel abstract sometimes. We read and see how God has acted in the past, the things that he's done and he's said, but the setting of our lives looks two to 3,000 years newer. It's just different. The heart of humanity really hasn't changed. As we look at the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we can see the same heart as ours, just in a different environment. So, We can take the principles we find in the scriptures, apply them to our specific circumstances, and from that, we can know what our our next steps are today, the the things that we can do right now to obey God. But I want to do this with the story that we're in the middle of. What is God's perspective on the purpose of testing and difficulty? What is he doing with this? What principle from scripture can we apply? Actually, we can go back to our theme verse and see the next verse Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It says in verse 29 that he is working everything out so that we will be conformed to the image of his son. God wants to shape you. That means pressure, scraping, and polishing, and your experiences are one of the key tools he used to shape your character and deepen your trust. Difficulty actually is an opportunity for your character to be formed, and in God's economy, your character and faith are far more valuable than your comfort. If God allows your plans to fail, he's in the details working to accomplish something that will grow your character. He's using the circumstances of life to drive the reality of his rule deeper into your hearts. God uses the the pressure of our daily experiences to take what is true and to make it real in our lives, transforming us to be more like Jesus. And we see this principle play out with Israel. While the Israelites responded to failed plans with despair, if you read the story, it's pretty dramatic. God was still at work. They just couldn't see it. Later in the story, God pulls back the curtain and shows that he is quite capable 
of protecting his name and accomplishing his purposes without the help of Israel. The writer of 1 Samuel spends three full chapters talking about the exploits of the ark with the Philistines. Wherever the ark went under Philistine control, there was trouble for the people. They noticed the pattern, and they started to wonder if there was a correlation, if Israel's God was bringing the trouble, or if it was just chance, if it was just coincidence. So the Philistines decided to test their theory by tying the ark up onto a cart that was unmanned and send it on a road back to Israel. In 1 Samuel 6, 7 through 9, we see the record of the Philistine leaders as they're trying to come up with this plan. It says, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. What God is doing here is really fascinating. The Philistine rulers stacked the deck against the Lord. The two cows pulling the ark had never been yoked, and they had calves. They were completely untrained, and they would naturally want to go back to their calves. So the rulers let them loose on the road and followed the cows, and a miracle happened. They, they didn't move, it says, to the right or to the left. They, they, they went straight for Israel's territory. They didn't waver. The cows whined the whole time, but they went straight back to, to Israel. God showed the Philistines and the Israelites that he was in total control and could even make animals go against their nature to accomplish his purposes. So why the big ordeal, the silence, the failed plans, the ark was gone, then it's back? God's primary concern for Israel wasn't the physical threat of the Philistines. It was the spiritual threat of their wandering hearts. God knew it would take something drastic, like losing the ark to humble them, and get them to a place where they would actually want to return to the Lord. After the ark returned, Samuel gathered all of Israel together. And in 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 4, it says this, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and ashtoreths and served the Lord only. The Israelites' goal was to get rid of the Philistines. God knows that our hearts are prone to wander away from him, and that would be far more destructive than any Philistine army. So God allowed their plans to fail. He humbled them and used that experience to draw their hearts back to him. God's goal was their good. Their perspective, however, on what good was, was just too small. They wanted physical peace with their enemies, but God wanted to provide that and provide spiritual peace that only comes from a heart that's devoted to him. And that brings us to response two. When God seems silent or your plans have failed, get perspective from his word. And then humbly ask him if you've gotten off track. 
This has been something that I, I've had to do so many times. I actually did this in the car on the way here. God wants us to be on track in our relationship with him, not off track. Honestly, though, from our perspective, we have blind spots into our life. It's hard to tell sometimes. And so I've just decided that it's most helpful to ask him. Since he wants us to be on track, I just ask him, is there anything that I'm relying on or putting my hope in besides him and his plan? And I found also that it's, it's hard to, to actually ask those questions. It's hard to know what to say. So I just decided to pray his word back to him. We're not the first people with wandering hearts. In Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's been such a helpful verse for me just to pray, to make sure that I'm on the right track with God. And when I do, there have been a few different things that have happened from praying this. Sometimes immediately a conversation that I've had or something I've done just pops into my mind. And that gives me a place to start and check with God's word to see if what I did was wrong and actually needs to be cleaned up. Usually it's pretty obvious, and I think, oh, yep, that was wrong. Oh, man. There have been other times when I've prayed this, though, and it's been unclear or nothing comes to mind. And so if it's unclear whether you're off track, investigate. There's, there's nothing that could ruin a life faster than being off track with God. And even if the thought is that it's just unclear, our relationship with him is so important that we, we, we should seek to get back on track. So, meet up with a trusted, mature Christian friend. Tell them what's going on in your life and ask them their thoughts. Resist the urge to hide the details that make you look bad. <laughs> Answer their questions honestly. Check their advice, of course, with what the Bible says. And then humbly ask God if they're right. Honestly, if what they say squares with Scripture, they're probably right, but we don't want to make the mistake of leaving God out of the process. So, we ask Him. If the answer when you pray this is, no, you're on track, sweet. <laughs> Keep moving forward, trusting God is working behind the scenes. Our, our, our job in those circumstances is to do the last thing God told us to do. To, to move his agenda forward into the future. And if the answer is yes, you're off track, then return. Return to God. Confess the wrong you've done to God and clean up any messes you've created. It's a humbling and soul-cleansing experience, but if restitution needs to be made to someone, then make it. If forgiveness needs to be asked of another person, ask it. If a lifestyle change needs to be made, then make it. It's never too late to get back on track with Jesus. He's always there waiting for you to return. In fact, he's actively working out the details of your life to grow you. He's even willing to let your plans fail to get your attention and bring him back, bring you back. God is going to use tests in your life to take things that are true, that maybe you agree with, and make them real to you. He's going to take the facts of how life works and turn them into something that, that impacts your life on a decision level. I've experienced this in my own life. The Israelites experienced it too. For, for the Israelites in the story, God used this long experience to, to humble them 
and to bring them back to God. In one decisive action, God changed the spiritual leadership of the nation and went from Eli to Samuel, and he used Samuel to bring in the nation's golden age. They call him the kingmaker because he brought in Israel's first king, Saul, and then David. This is the golden age that God brought in, that he was working for Israel. So I want to encourage you, God is working. It may not feel that way in the moment, but it's true. Don't wig out. He's in control. He's working out the details of life, even if you don't see it. Cling to his word and and ask for his help to resist your heart's tendency to wander away. Once you get perspective from God, you've really set yourself up to pass the tests and see your faith grow. Our faith, it really is strengthened as we endure through difficulty and testing. It's uncomfortable, but it's a necessary part of the growth process. God uses those moments to humble us and to, to beckon us to return to him. So if you find yourself asking, where is God today? Use that as an indicator that you should seek his perspective from his word and humbly ask if you've gotten off track. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your kindness, you are working out the details of our life for our good. And God, thank you that you define what is good. We're often too short-sighted to see the good that you're working, even through the difficulty and the testing. And so, God, I pray for each one of us here that we would, we would actually learn to, to trust you in the moments of doubt or difficulty that we can see you're working in the, in the details behind the scenes, and we can trust you. God, please move the truth that you're in control from a, a true fact that we agree with to something that's real and impacts our decisions. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.